Welcome to Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger, the podcast for anyone who writes. At Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger, we recognise that you're not just one kind of writer. Perhaps you're banging out a novel between copywriting gigs, or maybe you're a blogger with a sideline in poetry. Whatever type or types of writing you do, our goal at Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger is to give you the shot of inspiration you need to finish that novel, submit that thesis or launch that freelance career. I'm your host, Claire Lynch, and in this episode, I talk to the poet, blogger, essayist and copywriter, Katie Evans-Bosch. In our chat, Katie talked about finding your voice as a poet, and why even corporate communicators can benefit from reading and writing poetry. That's coming right up. So, Katie. Hello. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. You are a prolific producer and polisher of the written word. <laughs> You're a poet, a blogger, an essayist, a copywriter, a critic, a commentator. Um, is there anything you wouldn't or couldn't write? I've never finished a novel, but I do have one or two bits and pieces tucked away. Okay, so we might be seeing a so, novel. I wouldn't say wouldn't. I might say couldn't, but we'll see. But you are a published poet. poet. Yes. How did you become a poet? How does one train to be a poet? Uh, well, I think that's two different questions. I think how one becomes a poet in, in one way is almost that one simply is a poet. I think it's you're slightly born not made because I think poetry is kind of about the inherent love of the language itself. Poetry is where you go to see what the English language can do. At least for me, that's how I write. And Do you think it's different for other poets? I think there are different kinds of poetry. If you look at, let's say, Homer, you know, he was chronicling. A lot of people write poetry that's about bearing witness to something. Um, but I still maintain, because poetry has a close relationship to music, Poetry is the place where the music is actually in the language itself. So it is about the warp and weft, you know, the actual texture of the language. And we actually talk about the texture of the words. Mm -hmm. um, and I certainly have been interested in poetry since I was about four and just beginning to figure out that it was something that you could write. I didn't really separate poems from things like nursery rhymes. It never occurred to me that it was a different thing. So I segued very neatly as a very small child from nursery rhymes into poems that had been written by people. I never thought of it as something that was in any way difficult or anything like that. I've always loved poems. But so that's one thing, at least for me, you know, that's my experience. But in terms of how you train to be a poet, really the number one thing is read poetry. Read poetry by living poets, not just the stuff that you've always loved, Keats, Shakespeare. There are lots of people writing amazing poetry right now. And I think, you know, that engagement with, um, with the language as it is right now in our culture is, I think, the stuff of, of poetry. Obviously, read the old poems, too. Read all the old poets um, and learn the craft. Learn how they've done it. And just write. You know, write your poetry. So, I mean, I 
can go and listen to as much Beethoven and Mozart as I like. That doesn't mean I'm going to be a brilliant musician. No. So, and so there might be something more than Yeah, just... well, there is. There is. But I think the first thing you need to do is really do the reading. Um, and one reason I say that is because I do teach poetry classes, workshops. Um, and the most depressing person that you can encounter in a poetry class is the guy who says oh I never read any other poetry because I don't want to infect my style with it I don't want the influence you know and that is like trying to learn how to play the violin without listening to the sonatas not knowing what a violin sounds like exactly and not knowing what it's cap- what what it's capable of doing and also not knowing what actually has been proven for hundreds of years not to work. Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, you know, studying poetry, I mean, studying it, like going to a class and learning how it actually works and why, is almost like a process of stripping away the stuff that isn't going to work. And in the end, what you're left with is you, your language, your own personal writing style, your voice. And where do, I think think it's that, a, where do you think that voice comes from? I think it comes from inside you. And I think most people... See, this is the paradox. Most people who want to write probably were the kind of people who used to love reading when they were kids. And you sort of read to get out of your head. And you read to learn about the world. And you read to maybe escape from your own world. All these kind of dreamy little bookwormy children... Um, But the awful truth is that when you go to write, you have to go into your own head. You have to get into your own dreams. You can't escape from them. You can't just say, I want to hear what other people think. And you have to engage with the daily world around you because that is where we all live. So you're in your head and you're in the world, which I think are two of the places where a lot of writers don't really want to be. (laughs) Um, It is a paradox and you have to just be brave and strap your boots on and go striding out so Um, where do you think those writers do want to be well you know it's a danger that you're just going to sit there and write stories that don't really reflect the world around and fantasy stories by the way can very much reflect the world by creating a new world that mirrors ours in some way you can add a lot of insight but if you're if you're doing things that really are just based on what's or what's you know, in your head, it's maybe not going to add that much if you're avoiding the world. The other thing is, so that's getting too much inside your own head, but the other thing that people do sometimes is just copy their own favorite writer or writers, not realizing that um, it's been done already and it's not as interesting the second time. I mean, it's very satisfying probably. If you just want to write for yourself and satisfy yourself, then obviously all bets are off and you just do whatever you like. But if you're hoping to get things published or find readers, the more you can base it on things you've observed in the world and, and, and trust your own insights and trust your own rhythms of speech. You know, for poetry, it's about rhythm. It's about vocabulary. It's about sound. It's about interplay of image and, and narrative. I teach poetic technique. I do advanced level workshop groups as well, where we just sit and rip each other's poems to shreds in the friendliest possible way for two hours. Um, And I mean, even people who've had several books published come and everybody gets something out of it. 
The other thing is that it's just as valuable to learn how to critique other people's work. You learn just as much as when people are critiquing yours. A lot of people um, come and they just want to share their poem every time. But actually, you almost learn more when you're talking about somebody else's poem because you don't have a horse in that race. You're able to just, with a clear mind, examine their poem and develop your ideas about why it works or doesn't work. But with the Poetic Technique um, class, it's a one-year course, and um, we just go over everything from meter and rhythm, rhyme. We do lots of work on rhyme and different kinds of rhyme, full rhyme, half rhyme, uh, slant rhyme. There's even a thing called fuzzy rhyme. Can you give me an example of fuzzy rhyme? Um, Basically, it doesn't really rhyme. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a thing called um, para-rhyme. And para-rhyme is kind of an inside-out word so that you keep the consonants the same, but you change the vowels. So it's very para, but it's effective. Not quite a rhyme, but there's a kind of... It's like two words brushing up against each other Mm -hmm. in a kind of diffuse way. There's a lot of it in contemporary poetry, and actually, you can read it and not notice, but there's a cohesion in the language just the same. It's a very subtle technique. But we talk about image, we talk about um, line lengths, stanzas. I've got a, a thing that I do with people where we talk about um, movie imagery, how movie directors create image in their films, mm-hmm. you know, using camera angles, using color, using lighting basically that a film director is in control of every single aspect of what the audience is seeing and in poetry so often people just say something about oh let's say you know there's there's flowers next to the window and I'm going okay are they in a vase or are they on a shrub are they inside the window or outside where am I standing am I in the room with the flowers or am I in the room looking outside at the garden tell me tell me show me where I am and where the flowers are and what kind of, you know. And then there's the sort of the jump cut, edit, the tracking shot, all these different techniques that film directors use to manipulate what we see or to create what we see. There's a saying, poetry is a visual art form, um, and that's why, because you want to create images. Visual and aural by the signs that you talk about. Ex- yes, exactly, exactly. It is, And it is about... It's about the music that is inherent in the language. And actually, we're speaking, and you can hear our voices going up and down. You can hear us taking breaths and creating rhythm. And everybody has their own personal kind of rhythm, and I think that's what you mean when you talk about a voice. Mm-hmm. Your rhythm plus your, your choice of vocabulary and your mood, I guess. So let's imagine mm. I've turned up to your day one of your poetry class. Brilliant. What do you get me to do to help me tap into that voice? What we do, the first thing we do is we make a big kind of diagram of a poem without words. I just write lines and squiggles to represent lines and stanzas on a big whiteboard. And we identify all the different aspects of a poem. And these are the things that you need to kind of keep track of when you're writing. And it's the same, you know, I do a lot of editing, and they're basically the same things that you keep track of when you're editing. Um, Word repetition. Well, you've got... So your units are vowels and consonants, words, 
afterwards, there are several different ways you can measure it. You can have phrases or sentences or what I think of as a unit of meaning. Then you've got the physical structure of the line and the stanza. And so the stanza works as a whole, but each line also wants to work as a whole as well, as well as each unit of meaning, phrase or sentence operating as a whole. Um, and we just kind of build it and flesh it out. Well, what are the other forms that inhabit a poem? Well, then there's your imagery, your language, your full stops and commas that break up a line, what kind of words you're using, long ones, short ones. So I just want people to think about the language and the fact that the poem is a made object. If I was doing a writing class to get somebody writing, having kind of done this diagram, which to be honest, it sounds really dry, but people always love the diagram because they love thinking of more and more and more details that are in the poem. And you're like, okay, well, you're going to write the poem. This is, you have to be in charge of all these things. I mean, I'm a believer in free writing, you know, get people to sit at the table and spend five minutes writing whatever comes into their head, stream of consciousness, train of thought. And then you look at that afterwards and see what's come out. Uh, my friend, a friend of mine I was just telling you about was, is, is doing a writing class. She's doing a memoir writing course this year, two-year course actually, this is the first year. Um, and they've been doing a lot of this kind of thing in her memoir course. The maximum length for one of their weekly assignments is 500 words. So there's almost like the actual not pressure to write a lot. The pressure is to write a short thing of 500 words or less. And she's already finding that it's building up into a thing that she really wants to pursue so that her little exercises are becoming more and more focused. And I think unless you do that free writing and let things just flow, you're not going to develop something that can then come into focus. And as it takes its shape, you find your free writing just kind of moving into that space so that you are producing something almost by stealth. So I work with people on that. And one thing all professional writers yeah. will tell you is that the writing is made in the editing. And yeah, this that, is that it. bringing something into focus. And I think it's something that people who aren't professional writers or don't write very much don't really get. And they feel no, bad right. if they can't get it right first time. No, you know, and that's exactly it. And that's true even of poetry where, you know, you look at something on the page and it looks so polished and so finished. And you just think, well, how did that actually spring into being? It's like looking at a mahogany sideboard and trying to imagine it as a tree. But it, it does start that way. And, you know, what really... Well, so there's a funny set, there's a funny little story concerning the French poet Mallarmé in the 1890s. And somebody said to him, you know, that sounds like a good idea for a poem or something. I don't think this is really how the story went, but he did say the quote where somebody says to him in the apocryphal story, that looks like a good idea for a poem. And he replies, poems aren't made of ideas, they're made of words. So you're doing your free writing and, and with any luck, trying not to think about it too much, just writing what comes out. And this is where the editing begins, when you start paying attention to the words. And, you know, I think as a person who's interested in poetry, who wants to write poems, you are interested in words. And sometimes it's a little phrase that starts a poem. Sometimes it's just a little bit of a rhythm that you heard, or there's a little, um, I don't know, just something linguistic, something verbal that comes into your brain 
and kickstarts a poem, and you might find that that's the first sentence that you wrote when you did your free writing. Sometimes that ends up as the first line of the poem. Sometimes it ends up as the last line of the poem. You don't know which way it's going to go. So you, you get the words out, and then you look at it, and you think, okay, well, is this what I really want to work with? Yes, okay. And then you're manipulating. You're just manipulating it. And um, kind of breaking it up and pushing it into a shape, really. And that's it, you know. Kind of writing it out part is the easy part, really, in a way. And then you work on it, and you work on it. Was it Jane Austen said about novel writing, calming it a little ivory statue? Yeah, the little square of ivory, the inch, yeah. the inch of ivory, something like that. Yeah. I've got one student in um, the workshop that I just did this afternoon who, at the bottom of every one of his poems, he writes the dates of every version, every draft of the poem. Interesting. Yes, exactly. And he saves it. I think he must save the old drafts too. But So the poem he brought in today had about a three-inch long list of dates underneath it, mm -hmm. starting in 2016. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and even a couple of them had like brackets because he'd made several different versions on one day. So it's like date brackets A, date brackets B. But it's interesting because you can look at his poem and you say, oh, you've really been working hard on this one. Mm -hmm. You know, some of them just fall into place. You write it and then it's almost there. And he just laughs and says, yeah. He had one once. The first date was in the year 2000 and he's, he's still working on it. Really? Picasso said of art, it's never finished, merely abandoned. Is it, is it true yeah. of poetry as well, would you say? Yeah, sometimes. Well, Yeats said a thing about how you can tell when a poem is finished because it snaps shut like a little box. Mm. And sometimes they do just snap shut like a little box. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they just come out and, you know, there's a famous saying from Keats, if a poem does not come as easily as the leaves on a tree, it had better not come at all. But I don't think he means you don't have to work at it. The tree certainly has to work hard to grow the leaves. Um, but I think what he means is that it just springs from you. You do have to work at it. But you don't have to work at forcing out an idea. Just write about what you want to write about, you know, and then make it into whatever the shape is of what you want to write. So what do you like to write about? Good question. I like to write about... Um, I don't write really autobiographical poems. I like to write about things, things that have happened, maybe historical things or funny little episodes or I mean I guess I have written some things about my family in the past it's difficult to say people ask me this and but somebody did come up to me at a reading once and said what I like about your poetry is that it's about things and he was a man who was who was reading as well and his poems are about things and it's nice to read to hear about something that isn't just the poet I think but I also like poems that are about the poets, so... Would you like to share one of your poems about things? <sighs> yes, let's see. Here's a poem about a thing. So this is about the day that I found out, which I had never realised, there are phosphorescent animals at the bottom of the ocean. Right. And I didn't realise that was possible 
because I thought that no light would show down there. I thought that it would be so dark that nothing could show. But yeah, they're, they're luminous. And anyway, so this poem is called To the Sea Party. Go that far down and you're moving through night. You part the world's lead liquid atmosphere. Last particles of oxygen collapse and see nothing. You're blacked out past your red, your bluey gray, your scales or skin or frond. Passing squid provide your only outerwear from who can see where. Further down, the smaller crustaceans are their day. Phosphorescence flashes while they dance like Gatsby in color and never stop. The noctiluca form in tiny shining swarms and are both canopy and Chinese lantern. It's their party. Down here, you eat the prey that shines while you shine on your prey. Is this episode inspiring you to be a better writer? If so, visit my blog, goodcopybadcopy.co.uk, for a wealth of writing tips and to claim your free copy of my ebook, The 200 Writing Tips That'll Get You Writing Like a Pro. And if you're enjoying the show, do remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. Your support really means a lot to me because it helps get the show noticed. Now, back to the interview. One of the things you've said recently, you tweeted that... Mm. Poetry technique feeds into all writing. Absolutely. Can you elaborate Mm. on that and give me some examples maybe of of how you might have used poetic techniques in the other stuff that you write? Absolutely. So at the time when I, after a gap, decided that I needed to uh, write poetry again, I had stopped for a while. I mean, I was having babies and I started writing poetry And then eventually I thought, I need to go to a class. Um, I was desperate to join a workshop group. And I was overjoyed uh, to find that one of my very favorite living poets, Michael Donaghy, ran a a workshop group, quite a well-known workshop group. So I went to his workshop group. And he was a great um, formalist. So he was very big on rhyme and meter and formal technique. So I learned an awful lot from him in that way. That's not all I learned from him. He was also a great teacher of just being immersed in the art form. Just so inspiring in that way. But at the time when I was joining his class, um, I was working in communications in the not-for-profit sector. That was my day job. I was doing a lot of copywriting. I was doing editing. I was, I was working for Tower Hamlet's Council at that time, so I was writing a lot of um, council materials, articles for the local paper about things to do with housing. I was doing some press office work, all this kind of stuff, and editing other people's prose. And I just gradually f- noticed after doing this class that for a while, a few months, let's say, I was really... I found that I was thinking about structure differently. I would be writing a little 500-word article and I would be much more um, attentive of how I was structuring the information, aware of how I was doing it. I was more aware of excess words. I found myself editing differently, 
cutting out much more. Poetry is about concision. It's about compression. It's about getting as much meaning into a short number of words as possible. And I, I really, you know, that's what you're looking for in journalism. That's what you're looking for in corporate communications. You just want to get the point across. The point in a poem is different from the point you're making when you're writing a press release. But they both want, both of those forms want you to get the point across simply, you know. And also, I think, rhythmically. And, yes, you know, they, and compellingly. Compellingly and, and visually yeah. often. As well, I mean, I, I have to yeah admit when I've um when I've been doing something like a a mission statement for a large organisation or something. Oh yeah. I've called myself a corporate poet. Yes. Because it is that chiselling away, tweaking a word here and there, thinking mm. about how it sounds. Yeah, exactly. You're t- you're chiselling away the things that don't matter, mm-hmm. the stuff that isn't really going to inform what you want the reader to take away with mm-hmm. them. It's actually quite. I mean, I found it inspiring. I think that's not too strong a word, actually. And a lot of when we we talk about poetic techniques, what we're talking about, to a large extent, is rhetoric. Rhetoric is just the word for the tools that we use in everyday conversation, as well as poetry. Um, You just pay more attention to them in poetry because you can use a rhetorical technique to structure an entire poem around Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. repetition, you know, repeating the same word at the end of each line or the beginning of each line. Um, You know, similes and metaphors are both rhetorical devices. Asking a rhetorical question obviously is a rhetorical device. Um, And it's about using the sounds of words to ultimately persuade your audience. It's very much about that. And, And ending... Ending on the bit you want them to remember. Mm. Don't bury the main point of your sentence or your poem in the middle or in the middle of the line. Mm. You know, leave the poem, leave the poem, or leave the sentence, or leave the press release with something that people can go, "Oh, I will remember that." I think all writing, all editing, is about bringing out the main points. And that's, you know, however convoluted that main point may seem, if you're reading a quite difficult poem, nevertheless, it is there. The poet has made it the way they wanted it to be. And it's about paying attention to the, not just the dictionary meaning of the words you use, but also their kind of tone, mood, sense. Um, Corporate communicators talk a lot about tone of voice. It's a nebulous thing that no one seems to ever agree on in corporate communications no that's right and a lot of it really is about communicating with the people who are reading your stuff even in a corporation even if you're writing somebody's annual report there's a huge difference between sentences that are full of long latinate words that people use when they're trying to sound knowledgeable or impressive and short simple everyday language and in a poem, I mean, that can make or break the poem. And in an annual review, it makes or breaks whether people are going to actually read what you accomplished last year or whether they're just going to look at the pictures and flip it aside. Um, not that Latin words don't have their place, but it really helps if you pay attention to how the whole thing sounds. And if a sentence is hard to say because you're stumbling over so many hard consonants all the time might be worth making it a bit simpler 
in texture. There's the word texture again. So yeah. do you think um, all those corporate communicators out there could benefit from doing a, a little, little bit poetry, of poetry class? class. Yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah. And also it brings the joy back. The joy yes. of the words, the joy yeah. of the language. I mean, I quite like proofreading. You'd never know it from the number of typos I make on Facebook, <laughs> but I love proofreading and I find it really satisfying um, because it's about simplifying and pulling out what's working and, you know, really kind of um, making it pretty again, mm -hmm. making the language visually pretty, neat and tidy on the page so that it can really, you know... Somebody once used this word sing a lot in my mm -hmm. old job. Make the top line sing. <laughs> but, but I like to apply it in a kind of visual way, you know, about a nicely presented piece of work that's just sitting there neatly on the page doing exactly what mm -hmm. it needs to be doing mm -hmm. and not trying to do a million other things as well. I mean, even just reading poems in a corporate environment can just remind you of other ways of saying things, mm -hmm. other ways of getting to a point. Not that you're going to write poems in the, you know, instead of press releases, but that... Um, it doesn't all have to be about leveraging solutions and delivering excellence. No, it really doesn't. No, it doesn't. So, yeah. I mean, I think all writing, all writing is writing. Good writing is good writing, no matter what genre you're working in. And just involves paying attention to the language, I think. On that note, mm. you do do other forms of writing. Mm. Well, so, I do, yeah. Um, such as blogging and essay writing. Do you want to talk about what yeah. projects you've got on at the moment? Well, as you know, I've had... So I had one book of essays published in 2015 called Forgive the Language. They're mostly essays on poets and poetry. Um, one of them is about... A kind of exercise I did it's quite a long essay called my life and typewriters because I do like typewriters and I found that actually um, there was a way of writing about typewriters that kind of framed them within my life you know from my earliest memories of my mother's old typewriter and um, so that was fun um, but really my prose writing got started, my public prose writing, got started in about 2006 when I started my blog, which was Baroque and Hackney. A little bit dormant now. I mean, it's kind of on ice, but it's not. It's still there. All the stuff I ever wrote is on there. And I am publishing the odd post. And it started out as a poetry blog because that was what I was trying to promote and grew into the point where... I was writing about poetry and literature and kind of, by the way, movies and also sort of art and by extension culture and ultimately funny stories about what happened on the way to work. And in the end, it was just a blog about everything I'm interested in. Um, and it did do really well back when blogs were the thing and everybody was interested in them as this new form. And Do you feel they're not so interesting? I think Facebook kind of took over from blogging. A lot of the stuff people used to do on blogs, they do on Facebook now. Or Insta. Um, I don't understand Insta. Or Insta, and I don't get that one either. I mean, there's all this stuff. Twitter. I used to be much more into Twitter than I am now. Um, Great medium for a poet. All the Absolutely, and all that compression. 
It's not the same since they doubled the length of between them. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a bit too too verbose now, Twitter. Um, too nuanced. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They just go on and on. So, uh, but I do think blogs. When I write blogs now, I'm very aware that it's different from what I used to do when I started. Because when I started, really, a blog post could simply be the kind of thing that you would now put on Facebook. Hey, what a day that was. Um, somebody tell me something funny. Just some little short squib of a thing. Whereas now, if I'll write a blog post, it'll be something much more considered. It'll be something serious. It'll be something that I'll then go and share on social media. Mm-hmm. And get people to read, but it's more of a bit of a showpiece or something I really wanted to think through and write about properly. So in a way, blogs have changed what they're for because of that, because of social media. So what do you but, what are you writing about these days? Well, yes, yeah, so I'm working on a book which will be published sometime this year by CB Editions. CB Editions, by the way, is a very excellent small press which publishes all kinds of poetry novels essays very eclectic very quirky very serious in the best sense not dull and boring but seriously engaged um small press based in london very interesting books so i'm thrilled that they're publishing my book and it's going to be sort of memoir of uh, me losing my flat last year when my landlords tried to put my rent up by £500 a month, which I gather is something that's happening to more and more people these days. So I didn't actually go to CB Editions. They came to me. I started a blog about it. I was blogging my experiences because that's kind of my default position. The old blog was called Brock and Hackney. So the new blog is called A Far Cry from Hackney. And that's also going to be the name of the book. And and, they, and he just wrote to me and said, why don't we do a book? And it can be based on the blog, not based on the blog, you know, however you see fit. So there's going to be a bit about, you know, a bit of a state of the world roundup on uh, the way hidden homelessness is on the increase, mm-hmm. middle class hidden homelessness is on the increase. The new precariat, as people are calling it, is making people much more vulnerable, especially people who in the creative industries. Um, The impoverished writer. The impoverished writer, the impoverished graphic designer, the person living in a flat share working freelance, um, whose best client may have just gone bust or whatever, whatever. People are having to, you know, invent new ways of of sorting themselves out. And um, so my book is going to be a mixture of really kind of all the, things that I know how to write, except for it's not going to have poetry in it, I don't think. But bits of memoir, bits of slightly more journalistic things, bits of um, proper essay writing, like on a subject. But it's going to be around, I don't know, what is a home? Why do we Why do we think it has to be one thing and not another? It's going to be complicated. It's going to be an interesting and complex book that I'm only about a third of the way through writing, so it's difficult to say too much. But it is um, hopefully going to be funny as well as serious, or at least wry as well as serious. I've shown the publisher the first couple of chapters, and he said it did make him cry and laugh. 
So I was like, okay, at least you're laughing. <laughs> good. I think that's my perfect read. Oh, good. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm well. You know, good. Mm-hmm. Um, but but very interesting, and it's taken me into places I never imagined that I would go, given the brief of the book. And actually, this is a, this is a point about writing, really. That and this book tip really exemplifies this point, which is that. When you go to talk about writing a book, people say, oh, you must have a lot to say. Oh, you want to tell people things. And actually, I do my very best writing when I'm writing to try to answer a question. Writing is thinking through a problem. Thinking through a problem, thinking through an issue. Some of the chapters of my book are going to be about things people have said to me maybe that made me stop in my tracks situations I didn't understand while they were happening so you, I want to write about them to say okay what did what did what just happened there you know where did that leave me what's it about you don't always know that when it's happening you have to stop and think and I do think the best writing has that kind of slightly on the hoof air of discovery about it you know so that's kind of what I'm aiming for so we might see that in print by later, this year. later this year. I mean, it was originally going to be kind of late spring, but it's more likely to be a bit later in the year now. I wish you the very best of luck with Thank that you. project. Um, before I let you go, mm. and back to your writing and your teaching, we have a quick fire round. I'd just like to um, okay. ask you a few questions about your writing process. Okay. So, my first question is, what fuels your writing, coffee, tea, or something stronger? <sighs> yes. Sometimes one, sometimes the other. Okay. I would say <laughs> nothing stronger in the morning. I think I move from tea. I move throughout the day, so here's the answer. I move throughout the day from tea to coffee to wine in the evening obviously the wine sometimes not wine sometimes just more tea but yeah maybe tea is the answer okay Uh, when do you like to write are you an owl a a log or an owl um i'm generally not much of an owl but i do find that actually writing for me is something that often happens better at the end of the day and I will end up staying up too late and just getting stuck in. And I think the reason is that if I feel like the other things have to happen later, I've got a kind of end stop to the writing before I even start, and maybe that distracts me. But sometimes I sit down at sort of 10 o'clock at night thinking, mm-hmm. oh, I'll just do a little bit, and then I'll go to bed, and then suddenly it'll be 2 a.m., mm-hmm. you know. Having said which, um, I think editing is better in the morning. Because you can do a bit of that and then put it down and then pick up where you were. That's a good tip. Ah, there you go. Um, are you a planner or a plunger? Do you do you draft a detailed outline or do you just dive right in? I get the gist in my head and then I dive in. And the reason for that is that if you've written out a detailed plan, then you're not discovering it as you think it through. And if I do write out a plan, on the occasions when I have tried to make an outline, for example, um, you can stick to the outline only so far, but then something will take you off in a different direction. And I think those things are where the surprises come from and the discoveries. 
Would you describe your desk as clear or cluttered? Um, I think what you're actually saying is, would somebody else describe my <laughs> desk as clear or cluttered? Um, well, the current desk that I'm using is very small, so probably a bit cluttered. But I do like to have space to kind of put things down and have a notebook next to the laptop and have a cup of tea next to the laptop and not have the cup of tea fall onto the floor. So that clear. Music or silence? Absolutely silence. The music is coming from inside my head. Even if the TV's on in the next room, their voices interfere with my voice. Hard to hear those rhythms. Mm. That's right. Who's your favourite writer? I was afraid of that. Um, Well, I have so many favourite writers. But, you know, for obvious reasons, one person who's really on my mind lately is George Orwell. He's all about the clarity. He's all about simplicity. He's all about saying what you have to say in as elegant a way as possible and really not fudging it, not obfuscating, not saying something just to the left of what you wanted to say, um, being completely honest and, and taking responsibility for every single word that you write. I just, I, I do kind of revere George Orwell, actually. I mean, we can just say that for now. My favorite poets, tend to be um, musical, lyrical poets. Two of my favourite poets, actually, um, were just shortlisted for this year's T.S. Eliot Prize. Okay. Um, their names? Yeah, Hannah Sullivan won the T.S. Eliot Prize. Richard Scott was shortlisted but didn't win. Um, they're both published by Faber, and they're quite different from each other, so... Somebody who didn't like one might like the other, or you might like them both. Um, There's tons of great stuff being published. But in terms of older poets, um, I love Wallace Stevens, the American poet. Long dead. Died in the 1950s. Finally, your best writing tip. I'm trying to think of my absolute best writing tip. And I think actually my best writing tip is that you are writing to answer a question. If you're not writing to find out what happens, nobody, I've read, I've seen this in books as well, but I think it's true. You are writing to answer a question. And as long as the question is burning in you, the writing will feel driven. Thank you, Katie Evans-Bush. Well, thank you very much, Claire Lynch. Thanks for asking me. If you enjoyed the show remember to subscribe on itunes stitcher or wherever you listen and if you could leave a review while you're there that would really help me get the show noticed as ever visit goodcopybadcopy.co.uk for free tips and advice on writing and the writing life until the next episode bye from me